Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as a social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders in the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of World of Allergy podcast series is applicable to medical professionals from all backgrounds, as well as patients with a wide variety of allergic conditions. And we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Bill Anderson to discuss an update on biologics. Dr. Anderson is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Children's Hospital of Colorado. At his institution, he serves as the co-director of the Multidisciplinary Asthma Clinic and the Associate Director of the Allergy and Immunology Fellowship Training Program. Dr. Anderson's clinical and research interests focus on severe asthma, as well as the very interesting area of transitioning adolescents with chronic health conditions towards independent management. And with that, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave, for having me. I'm really happy to be here today. Well, this is great. And I know you have a great background in understanding asthma and biologics and phenotyping, and we're going to get into all that stuff. Uh, but before we really discuss that main topic, I'd really love to learn more about what you've learned personally from working with children and adolescents who have severe asthma. Are there any approaches that you take today that you perhaps didn't even think of when you first started caring for these patients? So I think today my practice centers around around two key concepts. The first is the importance of shared decision-making with our families and our patients. We really need to understand how asthma fits into their day-to-day life, not only for the treatment plan, but also for the diagnosis and understanding their goals. Uh, The second is really understanding the diversity of asthma, which we'll talk about today, but understanding that it's quite an umbrella term, and we have all these nuances to asthma, whether it's defined by the type of inflammation uh, that a patient has, the triggers for their asthma, or potentially exacerbation patterns. Yeah, so those, I, I love those concepts, you know, individualized approaches, the day-to-day management. I think that's really going to tie in nicely when we talk about biologics. So when you think about treatment of asthma or other chronic allergic conditions, do you typically consider the same starting point for every single patient that you see? Or it sounds like you're probably going to say more of a personalized approach. Uh, and if you do take that personalized approach, how do you begin to sort that out? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, On the one hand, I want to make sure I'm not missing anything for our patients. So I try to have an algorithm in my mind for how I'm going to approach them. So for example, with our patients who have severe asthma that come to our multidisciplinary asthma clinic, we always want to make sure that we confirm the diagnosis, identify and treat any comorbidities such as allergic rhinitis, uh, utilize guidelines-based treatments, confirm adherence, and minimize allergic triggers. But at the same time, as you're going through each one of these categories, you might find something that's very unique for the patient. Uh, For example, they have specific triggers in their home that we really need to focus upon. Or for them, adherence is a really big issue, and that's where we want to focus our efforts. So I think it's important to have an algorithm in mind so that you're comprehensive in your evaluation for asthma, but as you 
unravel this more, you want to see what's unique to the patient and really target in on those areas to meet them in their treatment plan. Can you tell us more about sort of the unique aspect of, of asthma and how it's heterogeneous and maybe, you know, dive into the, the concepts of phenotypes and, and things like that? Yeah. So uh, when we think about asthma, there's many different types of asthma. And one of the biggest uh decision tree forks whenever you're thinking about the type of asthma and subsequent treatment with biologics is the type of inflammation that's involved. So we break this down into two big categories. One is called Th1 inflammation and the other is called Th2 inflammation. And you might hear me throughout this uh, podcast today either say Th2, T2, allergic or atopic asthma. And those all set around the same concept that there is some underlying allergic inflammation. And we're able to get a sense of whether or not a patient has this allergic inflammation through different uh, tests that we do, and we call those biomarkers. So that could be something as simple as allergy skin prick testing or getting a blood test to look for eosinophils in the blood, um, or there could be some more nuanced elements to it, such as getting an exhaled nitric oxide on a patient. But overall, the main idea here is that we're trying to think what is the ultimate underlying pathway that's causing this patient to have asthma-like symptoms. And, you know, what about other allergic conditions? Do you think that we can start to take similar approaches when we're talking about just allergic rhinitis or even atopic dermatitis? Is there heterogeneity to these as well? Oh, most certainly. And I think like the nuances to each one of these allergic conditions, whether it be allergic rhinitis or atopic dermatitis or hives or urticaria, is this idea that there are these nuances to what is driving this process, how we would end up treating the patients that have these conditions. And this is where um, the combination of clinical medicine, basic science, and pharmacology come together with these biologics to really drill down what is the best treatment option for these patients. So I wholeheartedly agree with you, Dave. While we might talk a lot about asthma today, namely because that's my uh, field of interest, all these concepts can apply to these other allergic conditions as well. If we could peek inside the the fabulous brain of Dr. Bill Anderson when you're seeing patients, is it, I mean, I'm picturing like a beautiful mind. Do you have different algorithms and are you really sorting through the, the pathways and is that what's going on in, in your head when you're seeing patients? Um, there is far less red string connecting things together in my mind than maybe in a beautiful mind. But yes, I try to look at patterns and try to see how this all fits together. But at the same time, I'm also putting together this like lens of how this fits in with our patient because our patients are not just these vacuums of, oh, you have allergic inflammation, so this will work great for you. But rather, it's What's happening in your family? Where, what's going on in your home? Do you have bigger psychosocial barriers that we might need to address? So it's all of this coming together. And I think that that sometimes is a challenge for people whenever they think about biologics. But I like to think about it as more as this is a, um, an exciting opportunity for us to practice the art of medicine. All right, I, li I like that explanation so much. And can you imagine receiving a referral or a chief complaint? Hi, I have TH2 inflammation. Please help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I've had anyone actually walk through the door and say those exact words to me yet. <laughs> 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 well, uh, you know, even though they've been around really for decades now, uh, I still, 
hear a lot of confusion regarding the term biologics. Can we just start by having you define what that term means? Yeah, a, a biologic at its most basic form is a medication that was derived from a living organism. So oftentimes, in the case of biologics for asthma, they're often antibodies that were either started out in a bacteria or a mice, sorry, or a mouse or a hamster that subsequently was modified for human use. And often the target is some either molecule or cell that will disrupt these uh, allergic or these inflammatory pathways. Okay. Um, speaking of pathways, and we're really going to focus on the biologics currently approved for treatment of various allergic conditions. You mentioned inflammation, phenotyping, biomarkers, and things like that. But can you describe an overview of the main pathways that uh, these current treatment uh, options are targeting? Um, yes. Yeah, so in terms of the biologics that are out on the market, um, the main targets thus far are IgE, which is our allergy antibodies. Um, the IL-4 alpha receptor, which is involved with inflammation, um, seen in multiple allergic conditions, IL-5, which is involved with eosinophils, and finally TSLP, which is upstream uh, marker that kind of leads to this downstream allergic inflammatory pathway. So these biologics work in different ways to inhibit these molecules. So for example, if you have a biologic such as omalizumab, which is an anti-IgE biologic, it binds up the IgE or the allergy antibody, preventing it from binding to cells and also preventing allergies to allergens, I should say, to bind to the IgE and subsequently release their downstream inflammatory markers. Similarly, if you take a drug such as the IL-5 drugs, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit here, they prevent the survival, the maturation, and the um, activity of eosinophils. So you're knocking out a cell that might be causing some of this allergic inflammation. And, and if I'm hearing you correctly, understanding the pathways that these biologics target, and we'll go through the specifics here in a second, uh, is really useful because if you have somebody who has a neutrophil dominant condition and you treat them with an anti-eosinophil biologic, we wouldn't expect much benefit, correct? Correct. And that's where that idea of the biomarkers that I mentioned earlier come into play, because you want to make sure that you are targeting an inflammatory pathway that actually exists in the patient. You get the great example, Dave, of this neutrophilic asthma. Unfortunately, for these TH1 or non-allergic types of asthma or other kinds of um, non-atopic conditions, these biologics won't work for those because we're targeting a type of inflammation that's not the primary driver for these patients. So it's very important to recognize early on what kind of underlying asthma does this patient have so that you're using the correct biologic for it. You don't want to try to put a square peg into a round hole. Oh boy. And it sounds like we're going to have to use our brains, aren't we? Um, uh, I was told there'd be no math. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, before we go any further, at this point, I, I really think that I need to mention that we are recording this in early July 2022. And obviously, we, there may be uh, new products approved for use or new indications or ages for current biologics uh, that may change after this recording. So I want all of our listeners to take that, with, you know, take this conversation with a grain of salt based upon when you listen. And we also want
Unfortunately, don't really have time to take a deep dive into each biologic, each condition or specifics related to dosing, age indications, administration, et cetera. But uh, if you're okay with it, I'd like to really just spend a few minutes with an overview of the various types of biologics. And if so, let's start with anti-IgE therapy uh, with the only currently approved biologic being omalizumab. So can you just tell us what conditions this is approved to treat? Yeah, um, omalizumab is currently approved to treat moderate to severe asthma, nasal polyps, and um, what we in the medical community called chronic spontaneous urticaria, or for you uh, that are not uh, clinicians who are listening, recurrent hives. I will say on a side note, you might hear me say these same uh, conditions again and again, but that also leads to some of the nuance we'll have to talk about into why you might pick one versus the other. All of them have similar, well, shouldn't say all of them, but many of them have similar indications. Okay, so moderate to severe uh, persistent asthma, you said nasal polyps and uh, recurrent hives for omalizumab. Correct. Okay. Um, can you provide an update regarding the anti-IL-4 slash IL-13 receptor antibody called dupilumab? What conditions is this currently approved to treat? Um, yes, so dupilumab is approved to treat atopic dermatitis, otherwise known as eczema, asthma, chronic rhinocytositis with nasal polyposis, or otherwise known as um, chronic sinusitis. And then most recently, it has been proved for the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis, which is an inflammatory disease that infects the esophagus. Okay, so just to, as we get into this, it's going to get very complicated and hard to keep track of. Uh, it sounds like the first anti-IgE does not include uh, atopic dermatitis and now eosinophilic esophagitis, and that would be some of the main differences, correct? That is correct. Okay. All right, let's move on to the anti-interleukin-5 biologics when there are three currently approved for use, benralizumab, mepolizumab, and rezolizumab. What conditions are these approved for treating? So all three of these, benralizumab, mepolizumab, and rezolizumab, are all approved to treat severe asthma. Mepolizumab has some additional um, conditions that it's approved to treat in addition to severe asthma. And that, once again, includes this chronic rhinocytositis with nasal polyposis, uh, a condition called EGPA, which stands for eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis, which is a type of vasculitis, and then finally hyper-eosinophilic syndromes or patients who have very high levels of eosinophils that cause symptomatic disease. So asthma seems to be the key, the common condition for all of these biologics thus far, but it sounds like for the anti-IL-5 biologics, I'm not hearing any any indications for primary treatment of any chronic skin conditions. Is that correct? That is correct. So, so far, the dupilumab, which we mentioned, uh, will take care of the eczema and the omalizumab will take care of the hives. But these last three, the benralizumab, mepolizumab, and rezolizumab, there are no skin condition indications at this time. Okay, so for listeners following along, we're trying our best to provide some sort of, uh, you know, pathway here to sort of differentiate these two, and we'll we'll, we'll uh, um, readdress that in a moment. Okay, uh, moving along. Just in the past year of this recording, there is now an anti-TSLP biologic called tezepelumab that was approved for the treatment of asthma. How does this differ from the other biologics also approved for asthma? 
so this is um, uh, unique in the other compared to the other ones that we've mentioned thus far, in that the anti-TSLP drug can be used for patients both with allergic inflammation or those without allergic inflammation. Because TSLP is very high up in the allergic, um, I should say in the inflammatory cascade, it can affect both pathways. So in this case, we do not need to get screening biomarkers for patients who we may be considering uh, using an anti-TSLP drug. We don't need to see evidence of an elevated IgE level or elevated eosinophils. Now, mind you, it can definitely be used in patients that have those characteristics, but it's not required versus some of these other drugs we mentioned have a required cutoff eosinophil count or have a cutoff IgE level. Okay. And again, I apologize that we, we just simply don't have the time or scope to go through all the different details for all of these different biologics, but I think that's a really useful perspective. And and what I'm hearing from you is that the newest anti-TSLP is, is more non-discriminatory in regards to the type of inflammation that's underlying uh, our asthmatic patients. Does that sound proper, appropriate? That is correct. Um, to my knowledge, this is our first biologic that has been approved that can be used for patients with asthma who do not have an underlying allergic phenotype. So previously, that has been one of the uh, large barriers to caring for our asthma population is how do we care for these patients that don't have allergic asthma? What biologic do we use? But now we at least have one option on the table for that. All right. And last but not least, also in the past year, there is now an anti-interleukin-13 uh, antibody called trilokinumab. I apologize, trilokinumab uh, that was just approved. What are the indications for use of this biologic? This biologic is only approved for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis or eczema. So unlike the other ones, which thus far all at least had some kind of asthma indication, plus or minus a skin indication, this one is exclusively a skin indication treating eczema. Okay, so lots of overlap with asthma for almost all of them except for the last one. Uh, lots of overlap for the skin, and then we have some outliers in regards to the treatment or indications for treatment of uh, nasal polyps, and then some of the more specific eosinophil-driven diseases. And, and I think you've given us a, a great summary of the different pathways and the currently approved biologics. And now, I think to sort of bring it all together, for those of our listeners who are still with us at this point, uh, can you offer some perspective? on how clinicians should really best decide which one to use for their patients. I've heard you mention biomarkers and, and things like that. Um, you know, do we always start with the same one or, or can we actually predict who's going to respond best to each treatment? Yeah, in this um, alphabet soup of MAB drugs that we just went through here, um, <laughs> it could be hard to decide where to start with these patients. Um, and I think that there have been approaches that have been done. If you look in the literature, if you look at review articles where people have come up with algorithms of how they may want to start through this. And I think algorithms are a helpful guide for patients, but I personally feel that algorithms are not the best way to determine which biologic you want to use for which patient. And it goes back to this idea of shared decision-making. So whenever I have this conversation with my uh, patients and their families, uh, whenever we say, we're going to start a biologic, we need to think, well, where do we want to start? And typically, I want to make sure that they understand what are the different treatment options that are available. So going through this list of biologics with them, 
with a big focus on first off, do you qualify for this drug? And that could be with the biomarkers and with patient's age. Well, we did not discuss it here. Different drugs have different FDA cutoffs for age. And once we have that set of which ones you qualify for, then we need to start thinking about what are some patient goals? So for example, is your goal to improve your lung function? Well, we might need to look at a drug that specifically has that ability to do that because not all of them approve improve lung function to the same extent. On the other side, if your goal is to stay out of the emergency room, we want to be looking at the evidence for decreasing exacerbation. So we definitely want to understand what the clinical outcome is going to be. On the next, after we've gone through those steps, the next thing I want to think about is once again, meeting families where they are. How is this drug administered? We have some of these medicines that are approved for administration at home. Some are approved for administration mm-hmm. office. Some are both. So I think that uh, a good example is I had a patient recently who I thought would do great with a certain biologic, but the idea of them having to administer a shot themselves or having mm-hmm. the parent a shot to the child was a no-go for them. They really needed something that was going to be administered in the office by a nurse. So that helped direct our conversation, which way we go one way or the other. On the flip side, if you have families that are living pretty far away from your practice, um, especially here in Colorado, we serve a a seven-state region. So we have patients driving hours. It would not make sense for them to come every two weeks to get a shot. So in that way, the home administration is really important. The next step with this is also thinking about a patient's comorbidity. So we went through that big list of all those things that these drugs treat. Well, if I have a patient who has both chronic hives and asthma, maybe something like omalizumab might be a good option for them. Or if they have both eczema and asthma, maybe dupilumab might be good for them. So we got a two-for-one deal out of it in that way. And Mm -hmm. finally, Um, we always want to talk about families about what might be potential side effects. No medication is without a potential side effect. Um, So we always want to review that for them. And once they understand that process and understand what fits best for them, as well as with our clinical judgment as um, doctors and medical providers, then that can come together to make the best decision for them. Um, Dave, you've heard me use this analogy before, but oftentimes when I think of biologics, I think of the show House Hunters. So for those of you who are not familiar, they show families three different houses and they have to pick the best one for them. And they always weigh the pros and the cons of each house before they pick the best one. And that's the way it is with biologics. I can throw out, okay, here are five different options for you, but they may not all fit you exactly the way you want them to. And really centering in on what's best for a patient clinically, as well as what how it meets their personal asthma goals is what's most important. You, you know, Dr. Anderson, I asked you a, a really straightforward, simple question, and you gave me a five-minute-long five answer here. So how on <laughs> earth... How are we supposed to have this conversation with patients in the middle of a busy day? I mean, do you have, does, is this a 20-minute conversation? Do you have people in your in your staff that actually help you in some way? Do you have written literature you give them? Is this the initial conversation you follow up with them? Give us a little more insight into, you know, how does this work into a busy clinical practice? Oh, you bring up a fantastic point. And um, as you can see here, it's not as simple as just like pulling a lever and we have our drug that we want to pick here. I think what's important is to 
talk to families first as we're getting closer and closer to getting to a biologic. So for example, in my practice, if I have patients that are failing um, standard guidelines-based therapy and we're escalating their controller therapies, I start introducing the biologic a little bit early on saying, we have this medication out here. I just want to tell you a little bit about it. I'm planting the seed. And so that way they're starting to do a little bit more research on their own at the same time. Then whenever we do actually get to the point of having that conversation, I tell them we're going to, we, this is kind of got to be the focus of today's conversation of today's visit is to really delve into what biologic we can choose. And then I'm also very fortunate in that I have a fantastic nursing team that can talk to the family more about the logistical aspects of this, how it's administered, the frequency administration, helping with um, insurance coverage. So if you're able to, um, engage your nursing and ancillary staff, that's also a great way to help potentially decrease a little bit of burden on the medical providers. No, yeah, it does. I mean, I, I have a similar experience and it, it just takes a lot of work and you kind of have to plant the seed and revisit the conversation and and help guide their um, their own investigation in regards to some of this while giving vetted resources. Dave, I think you bring up a really good point though in that uh, it's important to take the time up front and have these conversations with families so they understand their investment in it and why we think this is important and why they should be using it. I've had uh, my own personal uh, failure with some patients where they didn't quite understand why we were using this biologic or why we picked this one or the importance of it. And then we weren't as successful or later on in time. So while it might seem like a big conversation to have now, I think it's worthwhile doing when you're considering a medication such as a biologic. I really like that word you used, investment. Uh, I think that that's key to everything that you discussed with shared decision-making and proper selection and, and management. Um, before you even you know, have this conversation, when should biologics even be considered? Are they first-line therapy for anybody who has asthma, atopic dermatitis, or some of these other conditions? And if they're not first-line therapy, why shouldn't they be used until other options have been attempted? Yeah. So it's funny when I talk to some patients about it and they're like, wait a minute, there's this one drug that's going to target this one molecule that was causing my asthma. Why didn't we do this from the start? And I have times have to pause them and say, well, it's not that, not that simple. It's all just all one molecule that we're targeting here. But part of the reason this is not first line therapy is because these drugs are very expensive for patients, and it's also a big commitment. Think about having a pediatric patient who might be getting a shot every two weeks. Kids are not always the biggest fans of needles, so you want to make sure that you are making the correct investment in the patients by starting with approved therapies and working your way up. So typically, if I have a patient with asthma, I'm going to want to start them on uh, guidelines-based therapy. You can use either NHLBI or GINA guidelines with escalating inhaled corticosteroids and long-acting beta agonists. With eczema, we think about using our topical treatments, including um, extensive moisturizing regimens, topical steroids. And then if these are failing, that is the time that you want to bring in these kind of uh, biologic agents. And I guess along those lines, you mentioned before about understanding what the evidence shows in regards to outcomes, you know, improved lung function, reduction in exacerbations. Uh, should these, you know, should clinicians predetermine some outcome goal prior to starting treatment in order to determine if they're helpful? Like, how do you know if, if this is the right course for somebody? And what's the best way to, to evaluate efficacy? And then one last question along those lines, when do you evaluate uh, efficacy? Is it, you know, should it be immediate? Should it be six months down the road, 12 months down the road? 
uh, give us some guidance in regards to that, please. Um, yeah, it, it goes to the um, idea, if you don't know the destination, how do you know where you're going? So you need to have a goal in mind. And once again, I may be harping on this idea, but the idea of shared decision-making comes into play here with talking to families. Is my goal to have you go from four exacerbations a year to two exacerbations a year? Or are you really wanting to get to zero exacerbations? And is that even feasible um, based on the severity of your asthma? So really kind of having a target, whether it is a reduction in uh, steroid use, uh, reduction in exacerbations, an improvement in lung function, you want to have a goal in mind so that way you can have a benchmark to measure your success against. As for your second part of your question on when to reassess this, we usually think about this in about three to six months is the general consensus about when you want to be thinking about this. I would err a little bit closer to the six-month mark, but at the six-month mark, if you notice we're having an improvement, we would want to continue. If we're at the six-month mark and we're not getting much benefit, we might want to pivot at that point to something else. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. Great guidance there. Oh, well, as of now, are biologics considered lifelong therapy? Uh, can we taper some patients off over time? Do these biologics cure any of these conditions that they're approved to treat? Yeah, so this is the question that comes up a lot, especially in our pediatric patients, because families are saying, are you going to have me put my kid who's uh, 12 years old on this medication and they're going to have to be on it until they're 100? The idea is no, that should not be the case, but we need to be consistently um, revisiting the success of the biologics. It is not a uh, Ron Popeil, set it and forget it uh, <laughs> type of product for those of you old enough to know that infomercial. Uh, so as long as you are reevaluating the patients at routine intervals, that is what will help direct how long to stay on this medication. So for example, uh, we did that initial three to six month uh, look at our patients. If they're successful, I want to continue to look at three to six months. And if they've been well controlled for, I would say, usually about two years, there is some uh, debate in the field about how long is the appropriate amount of time, I then start having a conversation with the family about potentially weaning them off. And usually what I like to do is I like to space out the dosing of the medication and see if they exacerbate or not. That is just my personal style, but different providers will tell you different um, uh, uh, styles uh, and philosophies in this area. Um, and then as to the question of do these actually cure any of these conditions? As of now, no. Um, it does not cure any of these conditions. But what's really exciting is that there's been some studies done in the young pediatric patients um, trying out these biologics and see whether or not it might disrupt or alter the natural course or natural history of these conditions. So I'm very excited to see that work come out in the next few years. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Uh, I have not once heard you say for any of these treatment options to just set it and forget it. Um, in other words, you, you've really gone through and, and teased out why it's important to um, reevaluate over time, have you know outcomes in mind when you prescribe them. Um, do we have any evidence that shows that you know these are either being overprescribed or being used in that manner, where patients just start on them and stay on them for years and years and years, even if their conditions improve? Or do we really not as of yet? 
Um, I am unaware of any data that shows that at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And I think that it goes to the idea of um, medical providers being um, judicious with their use of these medications. But like any medication, sometimes it's you can kind of just get used to it and you think about don't think about it as frequently. So I want to make sure that our uh, doctors who are prescribing biologics and our patients that are using them are reevaluating over time. Do I need to continue on this or not? Mm-hmm. All right. If you're up for it, I have more brain teasers for you because there's some nuance yeah, here. And it, I, think it. I think it's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. We can discuss this because they've been around for a while. So all right, let's take a patient, say an adult with severe refractory asthma, history of multiple hospitalizations and exacerbations, and they start therapy with one biologic, but they don't show obvious improvement. And then the decision is made to try another biologic that targets a different pathway. Should there be some transition period where both are administered simultaneously, or can people simply just stop one then start another? What, you know, do we know anything about this? So, in my experience, if you have, if you're on a biologic that is currently not doing anything for you, you could just stop it and start the next one. I am unaware of any um, washout period that you might need between the two of them, and I don't personally do an overlap with them now. In a theoretical situation, if you had a patient that's doing well and you wanted to change them to another biologic, that might be different. But at the same time, I don't know why you would change them to another biologic if they're doing well on the one they are doing, uh, the one they're currently on. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think we can get into it here just because there's so much uh, nuance involved in it. But I would say for anybody who has questions about, say, insurance coverage or prior authorization, and I know this is a, a, a rapidly changing field, um, I can say that the Academy website, especially the practice management and advocacy areas, they are actively addressing this over time. So I would, I would encourage everybody to kind of um, look at those resources. Because as you mentioned, why would you change somebody if they're doing well clinically? Uh, you know, anecdotally, I've heard of situations where it just covers stops all of a sudden and they have to switch to another one, which is unfortunate. That's an excellent point. And my apologies for not, it's not bringing that up. No, no, you're right. Yeah. So, um, well, as somebody with a strong interest in caring for patients with severe asthma, this explosion of biologics must be really exciting for you. I don't know when you find the time to read about it between your house hunter addiction and watching infomercials late at night, but it sounds like you're doing your, your work behind the scenes. Uh, are there other treatments in the pipeline? And, you know, what do you think this space is going to look like in, say, 10 years from now? Oh, this is one of the things that makes me so excited to be in allergy and immunology right now. I really feel um, in 10 years down the line, there's going to be a wide variety of these biologics, and they're really going to start becoming more and more drilled in for the specific conditions. So when we talked about earlier about the different types of asthma, the different types of eczema, the different types of hives, really trying to find what's best for each individual patient. On the other hand, that can maybe be a little... Um, scary for patients and for uh, providers if there's too many uh, biologics that are on the field. But I think that it comes back to this idea of providing what is best for our patients and this idea of personalized care. And I really hope that this personalized care element will just continue to flourish moving ahead. And as I mentioned earlier as well, if we're able to find out in the next five, 10 years that there are opportunities to potentially disrupt these pathways so that it could be curative. That would be amazing. But let's first, let's not get ahead of my skis here as part of a Colorado analogy. And uh, let's see what the research shows first. Yeah, you you touched upon something which I find interesting. And I spent a lot 
I'm thinking about unintended consequences uh, or even the downside of new advancements. And I don't think that's something that we discuss, you know, on a regular basis. So what's the potential downside of this seemingly rapid explosion in biologic choices? Um, I think it kind of gets to what we've talked about today is a little bit of confusion about where do I start first? I don't want um, uh, medical providers or clinicians to be in the place where they're having like um, decision paralysis or that they don't know which ones to pick for our patients. But on the same token, we can look towards other fields of medicine, for example, rheumatology, which has had a similar um, burst of biologics in the last um, 20, 30 years and how they were able to take this on. So I don't think it's a problem that's not that we can't overcome. I think a lot of it also is going to be a lot of education with families, especially as we see more and more direct-to-consumer advertising. They might wonder, why did you pick or why do you think this biologic might be better for us versus this one, um, especially if they have similar indications or seem very similar on the surface level. So I think that will be another thing that will be um, a bit of a burden for both families and um, clinicians is having these education conversations. But like I said before, they're extraordinarily important to have. Mm. And I guess that leads into my last question for you. As somebody, you clearly devote much of your time to understanding best practices surrounding selection and proper use of biologics. So what advice do you have for all of our colleagues in clinical practice who perhaps don't have the same amount of time to read through each of these studies or stay up to date on the latest news? Are there any currently available resources to help guide uh, the optimal use of biologics in practice? Yeah, there definitely are. So um, I highly recommend um, the Academy website. There are some great resources there, including videos. You might see me on there, uh, as well as Dr. Stukas and other people um, that um, are talking about these drugs and how best to choose them and their indications, side effects, administration. Also, um, the Global Initiative for Asthma has a free severe asthma guide available online that talks a little bit about a, a a little decision tree about which ones to pick and why. And then also um, within the last several years, in many of our allergy journals, there have been reviews published that have contrasted um, these different biologics to help give you high-level summaries and why you may choose one versus another. That's great. And we'll, we'll include any of those pertinent links if we can on the on the website for the podcast as well. So thank you for mentioning those. Well, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today and discuss this really exciting area. And I know it's something you're passionate about, and I know that uh, your perspective is going to be very insightful for others. Are there any last words that you'd like to share with us before we depart? Uh, I'd just like to thank um, you so much, Dave, for inviting me to be on here. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I hope that um, the listeners learned about these biologics, their importance um, to treating um, some more refractory allergic conditions, and how big of an impact they can make on patients and how this can be the future of personalized medicine. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed today's episode please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>